Welcome to Acre Interview. I'm Mike Green, your host, and this podcast is with Al Pepper. Al chats about being a navigator on the Tornado GR4, flying with the BBMF, and being Britain's manliest man. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircareinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Also, visit us at aircareinterview.tv to watch all of our other interviews and sign up to our newsletter. Enjoy. How, how did you become interested in aviation? Uh, I think like everyone, it was Top Gun. Uh, throughout our childhood, I'd wanted to join the army, uh, left school, went to work at Rolls-Royce Motor Cars, and then around the age of 16 or 17, I think, I saw Top Gun, and that's when the, the, the idea first bit. Didn't think it was possible. I'd, I'd been to a working class comprehensive. Uh, came away luckily with five O levels, but I thought that was way beyond me. Uh, did a bit of investigation, and it turned out it wasn't. The, the HNC had got through my apprenticeship, and the two five and the five O levels meant that the door was potentially open, and that started a journey towards eventually getting in. <laughs> So what was your first uh, flying experience, like an air show, flying? Uh, my, ooh, first, I think I went to an air show as a young, young child, but I don't really remember that. And it was literally once I'd sort of set this goal out to do this, um, I then paid for a few flying lessons to see if I would be airsick or not and to try and give me a better chance of getting in. Uh, and, and that was my first real go at, at flying. So what year did you join the RAF? Joined in 95 after two unsex, unsex, ugh, unsuccessful attempts. Uh, I finally got in. First year, I failed all my aptitude tests and didn't really know what I was doing. I'd only seen Top Gun. Uh, the second time, um, I got offered NCO aircrew or air traffic control, but I, I just wanted to fly. And third time, I, having failed pilot aptitude again, I got um, a slot as a navigator. So was the application process hard to join? Um, not really. You, you fill in a few forms. You go to your local careers office. They assess whether you're in the, in the bracket, whether you meet all the minimum requirements. And then the selection is four days. Biggin Hill was my first time, and then Cranwell the second time and third time. So after you got through and everything, when did your training start and what was the process? I got to IOT, Initial Officer Training, in 95, August of 95. Um, that was a, about an 18-week course that all officers do, regardless of branch, that they go on after that. And then I started my flying training. So initially Bulldogs at RAF Cranwell. Then up to Linton on Ouse to fly the Takano. From there, I got streamed rotary, so back to Cranwell for four, four or five trips on the Bulldog for the lead-in, and then over to RF Shawbury before finally ending up over at, in Northern Ireland. So, can you go back to the basic training? What was the Bulldog and like to fly? Um, I, I'd know no different. So for me, it's quite good. It's a bit unnerving when the the, the pilot and the teachers sat right next to you. Uh, but quite reassuring as well so you're able to communicate like you do in a car really so you sit side by side um, aerobatic performance but for us it was low level so quite stable at low level um, and as brand new I was coping with being in the air for the first time and, and all the brand new techniques I was learning uh, but yeah nice aeroplane enjoyed, enjoyed the time on the bulldog so how many times a week did you fly? Yeah, you'd fly on average about three times a week a day on day prepping and then, and then day flying but sometimes it'd be every day depending on the weather so after training, what happened after this? Uh, so I then went over to RF Shawbury and did nine months over at RF Shawbury flying the Squirrel and the Griffin, and I got streamed to go to the Wessex in Northern Ireland. So I went over to Northern Ireland, did the OCU for the Wessex in Northern Ireland, which is a bit bizarre because you're actually in an operational theatre learning to fly the aircraft. Um, and after about six months over there, you get combat ready, and then you're on task in Aldergrove. So what was the Wessex like to fly? What was the training like? 
Uh, very similar. So the, the, the stepped approach to training all the way along means you don't really notice a lot of marked increase. It's, it's quite gradual. And then next minute you find yourself with your mate who's 24, who's done the same training as you down in South Armagh, looking at each other both thinking, what am I doing? But you, you get through and the training gets you through. Um, we went over to Scotland for a few weeks on the OCU just so we weren't in Northern Ireland to, to actually learn to handle the aircraft. Uh, and then it was just a case of learning to operate it as a, as a team. So you said you went over there and uh, operated in Northern Ireland. Do you have any stories over there? <laughs> there's, there's, you do. <laughs> there's plenty. I saw, I saw Neil Farrell's interview that he did with you and he, he declined to answer. Um, he, he always tells one about <laughs> how I uh, nearly ran him out of fuel. But being a navigator, my version of that is that I calculated the fuel absolutely accurately, unlike pilots who were a bit... <laughs> grab a handful of uh, he says I nearly ran him out of fuel I say I calculated it to the to the kilogram so what was that, your actual role in the Wessex I was what you'd probably call mission commander or and basically we'd have 20 or 30 jobs a day that we get given by the army of flying troops and equipment various uh, everything moved by air in South Armagh uh, so we'd do that and my job would be to try and make it the quickest and most expeditious way also we had the um, search and rescue um commitment over in Northern Ireland and in that I'd be on the radios organising the search while the pilot was doing the, the actual flying. So what squadrons were you based with? 72 was my only squadron in Northern Ireland so 72 squadrons a bit weird out there in fact they flew two types A flight were um, Wessex and B flight were Pumas so not only did we have inter-squadron rivalry with 230 squadron that were out there we also had inter-flight rivalry between the Wessex and uh, the Puma. So how long were you on the Wessex flight? I did three years on the Wessex um, I'd, I'd not had the smoothest ride through flying trains so I ended up going rotary a great time in Northern Ireland brilliant first tour but I still wanted to fly jets so every year we have a, a, a report on, written on us and we put down what our preferences are and where most people were putting Chinooks and Pumas I was fast jet crossover please <laughs> and my, my boss got bored of telling me that that wasn't an option I should stop wasting my vote but luckily towards the end of the Wessex um, the Wessex was coming to an end so I had to move aircraft types anyway and the fast jet fleet were short of navigators and I'd done quite well, so I managed to get a crossover. So overall, did you enjoy your time on the West? Loved it. Met some lifelong friends out there, um, learnt a lot about flying, uh, learnt a lot about Air Force life. Um, really great first tour, uh, but I was glad to get the opportunity to actually go and fly jets afterwards. Al chats about the Tornado GR4. So I managed to get my fast jet crossover, um, which I was chuffed about. And, and bizarrely, a couple of my really good friends on the, on the helicopter force had also got it. Uh, so I moved over to RF Cranwell, to the Domini. Uh, I've just seen her inside. Uh, and from there, I did a 10-week 10, 10 fast jet crossover course, which was bizarre because I'd never flown it the first time around. Um, quite a grown-up course because I'd, I'd obviously got my brevet and was already a navigator. The, the guys on the teaching team there were quite grown up about it. Then up to 100 Squadron to fly the Hawk. And at this point, I desperately wanted to fly um, fighters. I wanted to be a, a fighter, a navigator. And there's a test up there called the Mate. And I did that and wasn't particularly great at it. And so I was feeling a bit disappointed. And then actually after the air combat module, it was like, all you see is blue sky all day, every day. But if the low level phase, which I was really comfortable from, from helicopters, but going a lot faster now, yeah. I was like, no, nah, I want GRs now. And, and fell in love with the, the ground attack role. Uh, luckily, the Air Force saw it the same way. And I ended up at Lossy Mouth on the GR4. Could you tell us a bit about the crossover training? What, what was the process of that? It was just, um, everything happens in aviation on time, really. It's just that the distances are different. So I'd be doing a set of checks with two minutes to a turning point, where in a Wessex that'd only be four miles away. Suddenly it was now 14 miles away. Um, so actually, if you think about it like that, th there's not a lot of difference. 
that came to fruition when I was on the Lancaster and I'd be asking the pilot if we should do our uh, pre-recovery checks for landing at the airfield and he'd say in about 20 minutes yes because we're miles away whereas to me on the map two minutes in a tornado was about where I'd be doing my checks so it's gauging time more than speed so it wasn't completely alien to you no especially at low level so map reading skills at low level were a definite benefit in the, in the GR role and how much training before you actually got in the backseat of one in the backseat of a tornado yeah so it was about 10 trips on the Domini, learning to use radar and operate kit. From there, it was up to 100 squadron. There was about 25, 30 trips up there. So doing things a lot faster in a, in a tandem cockpit. And then over to uh, RF Lossiemouth, where it was quite gradual in a lot of simulators first, and then in the backseat of the first GR4. So what was the simulator like? Was it realistic to the actual plane itself? There are lots of different ones, whether you're looking at simulators or um, kit handling tools. So the Domini isn't a full... Um, cockpit simulator it's just a mission system operating simulator whereas the GR4 is a full cockpit you strap into it you strap into your ejection seat and it's an exact replica of the airplane so there are the different tools for different different jobs so after you went through your training can you tell us what your first trip was like first trip in a GR4 yeah I remember crewing into it thinking what am I doing do I do I know what I'm doing here but luckily the, the OCU pilots are are trained for taking up novice navigators um, yeah, and I just remember, luckily it's in Scotland, so flying down all the locks, we'd, we'd planned a nice, almost scenic route as a familiarisation, um, and, and just tried to replicate the things we've been doing in training. And again, it's a very stepped approach, so your first trip is a, a basic air navigation exercise, a uh, few fixes, few height fixes, and just recovery checks, and, and just looking at the aeroplane, how it operates, how you feel in it, how you feel with all the kit on, um, and then each trip after that, you introduce something more until you're up to full pairs formation, being bounced, two targets, etc. So how did it feel like compared to a helicopter? Was it exciting in the first trip? Um, you're just busy doing your job, really. It, it's really bizarre that you don't realise the office that you're in. You're just doing your job. Um, it's only when, I think, my realisation of speed sometimes is when you look over and you're in a pair and you see how fast the other guy's going compared to the landscape that you think, oh, I'm doing that as well. <laughs> Whereas actually, to you, you're just sat at your desk doing what needs to be done for the next event that's happening. And events happen quite quickly. You've taken off... Uh, you've, you've got ready, you've departed, you've into low level, you've got radio calls to make, you've got pre-attack procedures to do, you've got your attack, you then get maybe get bounced by another aeroplane, so you're just busy doing your job. So how did you find it dealing with all the new weapon systems travelling at 50 knots, low level? Again, the speed doesn't really come into it, it's the, just the, um, how fast things happen. Um, and the Tornado at that time had quite a large array of weapons that you had to be familiar with plus very complicated systems that you also had to be familiar with. So the learning curve is massive. And you, I couldn't know it all. So one day, I'd, one month, my, my tech would be really good, but my weapons would have slipped. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have to work on my weapons, and then my tech would slip a little bit. So the sim are always finding your weak spot. You'd always go into a sim and be really good on your tech and find out it was a weapons day. And, yeah, it was, it was always, you're always working on the first tour. Yeah. So did, uh, could you feel the reheat when you took off? Did that make an impression on you? Um, a little bit. Uh, again, you've built up to it, so you've already done Hawk, which was a little bit quicker than Takano, which was a little bit quicker than Bulldog, so you've got used to it. So it's not the massive kick like a, a carrier takeoff, for instance, would be. Uh, but you feel it kick in. Uh, but already you're thinking about, right, what radio call have I got to make in a minute once we're airborne? Who am I talking to next? Um, a lot of the time we're straight into the range. So at Lossiemouth, you know, you'd literally say goodbye to air traffic and you'd be checking in with the range. So you've got your pre-range checks to do to make sure that you're safe and you're in the right configuration for the range. You're checking that your formation man is, is on frequency with you 
and, and you're already into your pre-range sortie. So even on the runway, you're thinking what's coming in the next three or four minutes rather than, oh, there's the reheat. So how long would an average uh, sortie or training mission last? Um, in the early days, about an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes with sort of two targets and probably a bounce in there, flown as a pair, sometimes a four ship if we could, if we could do it. Um, and, and quite a lot in there. And then the debrief would last at least as long, if not two or three hours, um, if you were in a pair or a four ship. And that's where all the learning's done anyway. You don't do the learning in the air. You, you just do your best attempt in the air, but then you analyze it on the ground and, and see how you can do it better next time. Um, so yeah, about an hour and 45 actual airborne time. So did you always have like a, a standard weapon load or when you took off from it? No, part of the planning process is to determine what your target is. You work out what the target is, what the best effect is that you're trying to achieve against the target, and then you match the weapon set to it. Obviously, in peacetime, we don't fly with weapons on. We fly with simulated packages that the, the software knows, um, and you, you work out what weapon load you would take. So you said you also got bounced there. Did you, what kind of aircraft did you get bounced by? Uh, varied. Hawk was always quite good and difficult to see, so that just pop out of a valley, low level, and, and surprise you. So you're, you're trying to do your job, but all the time you're doing lookout both for danger of collision but when you know you're on a bounce trip you're always looking out for the for the bandit um, and that's always key to get the first spot in so in the debrief you've got at least one spot um, f3s occasionally used to come and play um, and you know every now and again you might get a, you, something on the radar you might get sort of a, an f15 having a look at you but they they never used to come in and, and close to a visual merge so normally the hawk or a partner gr4 so three gr4s would get airborne and want to play the bounce so did you ever work with other nations? Uh, I did I did Red Flag, Exercise Red Flag, two or three times out in um, Las Vegas. Horrible place to go and work, but they've got a massive desert there where we don't annoy people when we can OLF, so operationally low fly, down to 100 feet. So you're doing 100 feet in the desert, and, and above you there's a huge melee of a war going on between F-16s, F-15s, Red Air, and they're trying to get to us, but luckily the Blue Air are trying to defend them. So you're looking up for bounce aircraft, you're looking at your radar because they've got EW weapons there as well, you've got SAM systems, and um, so that's hectic. 100, 100 odd aeroplane in a package. Um, you've all got to take off on time, you've all got to recover in the right order because you're all low on fuel by then, you've got air-to-air -air tanking, uh, so, so that was pretty immense, yeah. Could you run through the cockpit with us? Yeah, I remember when I was on Hawks, a GR4 diverted in and... Um, landed because he'd had a bird strike and he said did we want to look around the cockpit so we sat in it and I remember sitting in it the first time I ever sat in a GR4 cockpit and looking at everything and going how can anybody know what all these switches and buttons do yeah well again it's quite a progressive um progressive system so down the left hand side you'd have um your data loading um you'd have your weapons you'd, you've also got a copy of all the pilot's instruments so you can monitor uh, down the right hand side you've got your comms and then you've got two big TV screens that you can change um, what's on them. Were so, they colour or black and white? Uh, when I was doing it, they were green and black. Yeah, green, green, writing on black. Um, you could turn them to you could turn them to black and white. And then in the middle, when I first started on the GR4, it had the whole the old GR1 um, moving map display. Oh yeah. Um, so that had a film map being projected onto a screen. Uh, by the time I left, it was bigger. It was a big, almost like an iPad, um, okay. with a moving map, all digital. Um, so a lot of buttons, um, quite a lot to do. Um, I had my roles and responsibilities really with, with the EW, the radio call. So the pilot does all the talking to air traffic while we're, we're, at, we're at home base. Uh, and I do it once we're out of, the, out of the mats. And I also do all the talking to the uh, ground controllers. So when you you in charge of the weapon system, do you actually get the trigger? No, pi well, 
There is, there is switches in the back, yeah. but the pilot generally pulls the trigger or presses the button. Uh, in the back, I get to I select the weapons. Uh, we also do back-to-front checks to make sure that everything's right. The, the, the huge benefit of a two-seat cockpit is that you've got someone to double-check your work. So he'll check what weapons package I've got selected is correct. And for instance, on the finals turn, I'll d- double-check that we've got three wheels down and flaps down. So it's a, it's a good, good concept for when the workload's high. So are you busy basically from takeoff to landing? Are you constantly busy? Depends on the sortie. So in a one hour 45 home base sortie, yes, you're kind of pretty busy. Because if you're not, you should be thinking about what's coming. Even if it's two or three minutes to the next event, which might be a target run, you should be thinking about, right, what have I got? What's coming next? Uh, on a longer sortie, so if we're doing something like a rack, then you'd have an hour's transit um, from where we're based in Doha or into, into theatre. And at the end of the sortie, an hour's transit back can't switch off but you're not busy so did you have any involvement in the um, air to air refueling yeah we have we, refueled quite a few times with because um, we you have to if you're airborne for five six seven hours yeah. <laughs> uh, by the time you've taken off heavy with weapons then you need to refuel quite quickly uh, they're always emotional um, a lot of pilots are, are really good at it every now and again weather conditions and and it's usually when you're really low on fuel that you start struggling to get in and the, and the pressure kicks in uh, but I've never failed to, to do it, and I say me, but the, it's always the pilot. Mm-hmm. We're, we're giving them a talk on from the back and then generally laughing at them if they miss. <laughs> so does your job involve any navigation at all? Early days it did. Um, in the very early days, it was very uh, map and stopwatch intensive. You were, you were doing things on time and speeds, which is pure navigation. Towards the end, not so much because the, the GPS systems kicked in um, and navigation was kind of taken care of on the pilot as long as he had the route plotted had had a moving map display in the front and he could navigate pretty simply on his own. Um, so we became more of a systems operator then, in, hence the name actually changed. So mm-hmm. I've got an N brevet, but later on that became a Wizzo brevet okay. um, because they became systems operators rather than navigators. So would you say your cockpit was well set out for your role? Yeah, but then I didn't know anything better. So yeah. uh, I just became familiar with it and I knew where everything was. So yeah, it was everything was in logical places for me. So could you tell us some statistics about the GR4? Oh, you're racking my brain now for going back in history, but we'd fly around at around 420 knots day to day, increasing the speed on, on attack runs um, up to about 600 knots on occasion. In red flag, we'd be sort of really flying through the, the SAM sites at 600 knots, 100 feet. Uh, cruising altitudes, you know, we wouldn't go very high at all. We're a, we're a low-level platform. Um, high would depend on the threat. So somewhere like Iraq and uh, Libya, we'd just fly at height suitable to be above whatever the threat was. Um, yeah. Is it true the supersonic capability is being taken away from the GR4? I don't know at the moment. The supersonic capability is there if it's clean, mm-hmm. so with no stores on, um, with no um, fuel tanks on, it is a supersonic capable jet. And, you know, if you needed it. So there, there are no limitations to prolong airframe life. They're there to, for engineering. If you actually needed it in a, in a horrible situation, you were being chased by somebody, then... You know, I'm sure the capability is still there with stores on. So can you tell us a bit about the wing, uh, wing sweep function on the tornado? Yeah, so the, the purpose of wing sweep, like, like the aircraft behind us, is that when you're at uh, low speed, you can move them forward and get a lot of lift. So when you're trying to land, for instance, you don't want to be going very fast. Uh, but when you want to go very fast, you want a little drag, so you sweep them back. Uh, modern aircraft don't need that, but, but in the 70s and 60s and 70s, when the GR was first thought of, uh, they did. Very much like the Tomcat, the F-14 Tomcat. So yeah, you'd have them fully forward at 45 uh, degrees, 
and that way you've got a lot of lift for, for low speeds for, for takeoff and landing. Flaps obviously down, slats down, generating maximum lift. Uh, if you were running away from anyone, if you were running away from a bad guy, someone, then you'd sweep the wings right back, clean everything up and park the throttles forward. So typical day, um, turn up for Met Brief, depending on if you're on the first wave or not. So that could be anything from six to about eight, depending on what wave in the day. You get the weather for the day. Uh, somebody would get to, told to do an emergency of the day. So every day you'd have an emergency of the day where you'd have to run through the immediate actions, talk through what the subsequent actions would be of it. And then you're into the planning cycle where you'd look at, depending, depending on what it was, if you were a singleton just going out to do some navigation, quite a simple plan. If you're a four ship bounced sortie on a, maybe a workup for somebody, uh, a far bigger planning cycle. So you're looking at what the target you get given is, then you'd have to get your head into books to work out what was the best way of denying that target, how many weapons, what type of weapons you needed. At the same time, people are planning target runs. The navigators are planning the routes. They're trying to build in some places for cut short so that they can cut short if they get yeah. bounced. So you're trying to work all that out. That's about a two and a half, three hour planning cycle. Then you walk about an hour to take off because we've got an out brief. We've then got to get changed. So most of the time we're in an immersion suit with a full bunny suit underneath, so a, a woolly pulley jumper, but full length. Um, G pants, life jacket, helmet. Then you walk, start the jet, you walk in plenty of time. So if the, one of the four jets doesn't work, you've got time to walk for a spare. Uh, and then airborne. Airborne for one hour, 45, two hours. Back, land, quick cup of tea and a bite of toast maybe. And then into the debrief with the QIs where they go over everything you've done to see if you did it to the best that it could be done and nicely tell you <laughs> where you'd made mistakes so you could improve. Al chats about some of the squadrons he flew with on the Tornado GR4. Have you been on operation with the Tornado? With the Tornado, yes. Um, I did Iraq post the second war. So we were based out of Doha flying peace support and, and support of the um, ground forces. Um, I've been to Afghanistan two times and I also flew on Op Elemi over Libya. What was that like? The Libya one? Uh, it's a surreal because we were based in southern Italy. Okay. So, so we'd take off from southern Italy, tank, go and loiter, um, take on weapons if we needed them, refuel, back over, over theatre for, for whatever we needed to do and then home. So probably about a four or five hour planning, uh, airborne time. So what squadrons were you based with with the GR4? GR4, my first squadron was 31, Gold Stars. I then joined 13 Squadron um, whilst on Op Elemi. So we were about to disband and then Op Elemi started with Libya, so we were extended. Uh, my claim to fame is I'm the last person to drop a weapon from a manned aircraft on 13 Squadron. Oh, wow. So I was flying with a 9 Squadron pilot and we, we dropped a weapon and then the next day it became a, a well it was disbanded and is now a UAV Squadron. So, and then I finished my time on 9 Squadron. So each squadron, there's a lot of squadrons, but do they all have different roles? Uh, when I joined the fleet, they did. So 31 squadron was an alarm squadron and an anti-radiation missile. Uh, 13 and 2 squadron used to be purely recce. They're, they're, although we, we could all do the core, we could all do the core trade of, of dropping bombs, um, they were squadrons that had specialist roles. Um, towards the end of the fleet, uh, now, so they're down to three squadrons now. When I was on the fleet, four or five, uh, we all did everything. And we were mostly um, close air support platforms by that time. Do you have a favourite squadron though? Oh, of all my flying or just on the GR? GR. GR, the Gold Star badge is quite good. The 31 yeah. squadron Gold Star badge is pretty good. good. And it was my first GR squadron, so I'll always have a soft spot for that. Um, and nine squadron had the heritage as well. It had been a Lancaster yeah. squadron. So at the time I was flying on nine squadron, I was also flying the Lancaster on BVMF. So it was nice to have that um, 
historical connection. So yeah. nice squadron was good as well. Do you have any memorable stories in the GR? Um, well, they all meld into one, really. Obviously, Red Flag's got some good stories. First operational drop uh, is quite uh, an event that, that sticks in the mind. Um, I remember one, one sort of low level in, in Vegas, which was quite enjoyable. Uh, but they, they all meld into one. I haven't got one particular. Um, you always remember the emergencies as well. I remember tightening my leg straps once because I thought we were ejecting, but um, <laughs> oh turned out turned out all right in the end. Yeah. So how did the, the Brits compare to the USA? Because you're talking about red flag there. Um, I think we do a lot more with a lot less. So our platforms aren't technologically as good. So the GR probably isn't as good as the, the F-15 Strike Eagle. Yeah. But the performances we put in and the and the results we get are up there with anybody in the world. So we definitely maximise through training and, and selection uh, the performance we can get. I guess we're like the Leicester City of, of flying. <laughs> with with limited resources, but excellent training and attitude, we're, we're, we're as good as anyone. So how long did you uh, stay on the GR? I did my first tour on 31 for three years. Then I went to the Domini as an instructor, teaching other fast jet navigators. And then went back and I was on the GR for about another three and a half years there where two years with 13 and then about a year and a half with nine squadron. So could you go into a, a bit about the Domini training? Like, What was that like? So the Domini, I did the 10 trips on the crossover, which is all I'd really done. And then I went back as a, a fast jet um, low level instructor. And that's really good. I, I think of all the things I've done, instructing is the thing that I felt most comfortable doing. Yeah. Um, I was, a, I was a good GR4 navigator, but I was never going to be a great GR4 navigator. I was never going to be a QI, um, but I was a pretty good instructor, I think, uh, because it was really good seeing guys that were coming in. I remember being like them, didn't really know what they were doing. And within four or five months, they were leaving us to go and fly Hawks. And actually, you thought, yeah, I'll be seeing these guys in a few years. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, I went back to nine and 13. Some of them were already on squadron. There are guys out there now that I taught that are squadron leader QIs, and, and it's great to see, see them progressing. So overall, did you enjoy your time on it? Yeah, great, great aeroplane. Um, well, it's not so much proud. It was, it was just good fun. The, the, yeah. the team doing the teaching were good. They were all into it for the right reasons. Um, you saw people that were fresh-faced and enthusiastic, and that rubs off on you. And you get to tell a few of your war stories, yeah. and, and they love that. Um, and you have an effect. So it, it was good, and it was a good working environment. No time away. So it was, it was almost like a rest between the two fast jet tours. Al chats about the BBMF. Uh, so after 9 Squadron, I moved to RF Waddington, uh, where I was the flight safety officer responsible for the station's safety procedures and reporting. It uh, wasn't really for me. It was sat at a desk, didn't, didn't really want to do that. wanted to do something a bit more engaging. Um, and so I moved to RF College Cranwell, uh, which is the home of initial officer training, where all officers do their training before they go on to be whatever specialisation they're going to be. Uh, initially, I was a flight commander responsible for 30 cadets, and now I'm a senior leadership instructor. Uh, teaching the leadership aspects of the course to the young officers. Do you enjoy that? Love it. Again, it's a bit like training on the Domini. Lots of fresh-faced people every eight weeks, really keen to start their RAF careers. Uh, and it's amazing what to, some of the things that they come out with, really clever people. Um, and it's, it's fun and engaging. Yeah. BBMF. Um, well, I'd always wanted it. It was, on my, it was on my tick list. I mean, I've been really lucky. I think as a navigator, I've flown everything I've wanted to fly now. Yes. So I really wanted to fly on the BBMF. So during my time on Domini, I applied the first time, wasn't successful that first time. And then the second time, I did a lot of research, went over, did the interview, and luckily, I got a place on the team. 
Um, amazing experience overall. I remember my very first flight though, so I went for my first flight in the Lancaster and I was in the nose turret. Uh, on a PAX trip I was just up there to experience it for the first time before I started my training. And I remember as we powered up there was no sense of speed as we, as we started down the runway and I thought to myself for a brief second, have I done the wrong thing here? Have I, have I signed up for sort of something that I'm not going to enjoy, you know, giving up my weekends and, and I'm not going to enjoy it? And as we took off, it was a sunny day and I saw the Lancaster shadow drop away from us as we lifted and I just and started smiling and I was happy. Uh, I had two and a half, three years on the, on the flight. Unfortunately, it was quite difficult to maintain um, whilst also being frontline GR4. Uh, diff difficult to be good at both uh, and time. And so I had to end up retiring after three years, but an amazing three years. So when you started, did you want the Air Lancaster to fly or did you want other aircraft? So there's two positions really for the navigators on BVMF. There's the Dakota and there's the Lancaster. Two different roles. On the Dakota, we're almost a pilot's assistant. So we actually move gear and flaps because it's all hydraulic. We're responsible for keeping the hydraulic systems topped up. And it's a, it, there's just a crew of two, just you and the pilot. And down the back, there's a, an air load master responsible for the, for the load and the passengers. So a far different role. It's not just the navigation. Mm -hmm. On the Lancaster, it's, it's just the navigator role. So again, you're making radio calls. You're the formation organizer if you're flying with the, two, with the Spitfire and the uh, Hurricane, uh, but far more of a, a navigation, are we on time, are we on track type, yeah. of, type of role. Lancaster was always the iconic aircraft that I always wanted to fly. I'd have given up two or three trips in the Dakota to fly once in the Lancaster. So how much training was involved? Again, a stepped approach. Uh, luckily, they're all skilled air crew in their own rights. So the pilots are all off big multi-engine airplanes, yeah. so they, they know their game. And the, the navigators at the time were all fast jet navigators. Uh, so we were, we were okay with planning and, and target runs and the concepts behind it. And especially from the navigator training role, we were, we were good with sort of target runs based on map and stopwatch. So it was just about learning the display, learning the aircraft systems. And it was, a, it was about uh, 10, 10 trips, I think, to get um, qualified. And then as a team, you do uh, PDA, which is uh, Display Authority. Um, where you're told that you can display for that season, that you're safe to display, and that's where you get your black flying suit. Can you remember the first air show or fly pack you did? I, just, I remember the first flight, the one I've just described more than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, the most memorable day that strings in mind was the day before the Royal Wedding. And oh, so okay. it, was, it was the Jubilee year, and so we flew as far north as Scotland and then all the way down to Brighton, okay. um, but connecting so many street parties, and every time we saw Bunting, we'd fly over it, Beautiful sunny day, and, and that day was pretty, pretty intense. Special. Yeah, it was a pretty intense day. I didn't do the actual wedding. I was, a, <laughs> I was the junior nav at the time, and the senior nav got that one. Oh. Uh, but yeah, it was a good day. So how many times a week would you fly? On the Lancaster, you'd maybe only fly once every two weeks. So maybe once in the Lancaster, and then once in the Dakota over the show season. Uh, I was based down at Marham, so getting back was tricky because there are some yeah. trips in the evening that might just be a fly past of Cranwell, which is 10 minutes from Coningsby. Yeah. Uh, so it depends on the sortie. We, we try and divvy them up at the start of the season so we could plan our year around them. And I'd probably fly, yeah, once once a week maybe on BBMF if I was lucky, maybe once a fortnight. So how many air shows have you actually flown at? I think I've got probably about 40 in the in the logbook, yeah. Not bad. Yeah, because you do a lot of events in a day, so they're not all full displays. Someone would just be fly-pasts. Uh -huh. The difference is a fly-pass would just be a couple of passes over something, like a, a, a street carnival, whereas a full display is gear up, gear down, yeah. 
joining with the Spitfires and the Hurricanes. So on a, on a given day, you might do seven or eight events culminating in a time on target at a specific air show. But on the way, you do lots of other events as well. Did you ever get to land and meet the public? Yeah, lots of places. Yeah, that's a good part of it. And also, when you land at Coningsby, there's quite a few people waiting for you when you get back. So we'd get out and go and engage with, with the guys there and give a few way few of the maps to the, to the young children. Yeah. So what year did you actually start flying up? Oh, you've got me now. Uh, probably it would have been 12 I flew, so probably end of 11 season after I got told I was joining. And how many crew were there? So you've got two pilots, you've got myself navigating, you've got an engineer taking care of all the engines, obviously four big Merlin engines, old yeah. fashioned, and then you'd also have, uh, we'd take a few people on, so it's a crew of four, um, core crew of four that you had to fly with, and then there are obviously various other seats around the aeroplane where you could take engineers or on the odd occasion VIPs on, on trips. Uh, we'd cruise around 250 feet, sort of 250 to 500 feet, uh, normal low level. It's, it's safer down there because general aviation is usually up at 2,000. Um, it depends where you are, you obviously don't fly that over towns, but whilst you're in, in the clear open countryside, uh, you can fly at normal low level heights. So you must have had restrictions in terms of how much you could push it and it's fast. Yeah, we, we gently, which is looked after, yeah. you know, gently, we don't, we don't impose any G on her. Um, you, you don't, you're not operating anywhere near the limits of, of its capability, uh, 100 odd hours a year total, airborne so it's really wrapped in cotton wool it's a, it's a yeah she's a she's a crown jewel of the of the nation so yeah. we're privileged to fly it so did you enjoy your time on the bbms loved it wished, wished i could have gone on a bit longer but it just wasn't practical for me at the time um it gives you a sense of being a, at the time a modern bomber pilot uh, sorry navigator we better cut that one out being a modern bomber navigator at the time and also being on nine squadron it also gave you a sense of history and, and what guys had done before you. And at the time I was in my 30s, but realizing that navigators would have been 19 and 20, the sort of age of the guys I was then training, yeah. it, it's, it is a remarkable thing to think what they did in those aircraft. So are you involved with them at all, even though you're not part of them? Not really, I'm, I'm still on speaking terms with a lot of the crew and I, I pop over every now and again with a friend or two to, to show them around. Um, I, I'm trying to keep, keep uh, my face known around the place you never know what the future holds and it'd be great one day if I could maybe go back but you kind of got to share that sort of privilege around it's not fair for the same people to do it yeah. for too long because everybody every navigator out there would love the chance to, to work on it I'll chat about having a title of Britain's manliest man so in 2006 I was waiting to deploy out to Iraq I think for the second time uh, I was watching TV and, and I, I felt a lump on my right testicle. Um, luckily, I'd got good awareness and got myself straight to the SMO. Unfortunately for me, it, it wasn't benign, it, it was a tumour, so that led to a, a quick bit of surgery and some chemotherapy, but not, not bad chemo that people are aware of, it was just a preventative chemo. RAF were brilliant actually, the, the SMO was fantastic and because there were no real set down rules or regulations, they, they said I was fit again after three months and I, I was back in the cockpit. Um, it was it was all good to go and then I was just on regular five monthly checks and that obviously led to me entering a competition in, in uh, 2014 yeah. to find Britain's manliest man um, as you can imagine the banter I get for that in crew rooms <laughs> yeah, is ridiculous mostly good-natured but you bear in mind the Air Force um, I've got a couple of name badges on my flying suit now so I think within two months of having the operation I'd got a name badge of iPod because I is the Roman numeral for one, so I was one pod. 
and I then had another one which was Uncle Bulgaria because I was a womble. Uh, bear in mind this is two months after surgery, I hadn't had the all clear from the cancer just yeah. because I was, I'd got one testicle. Um, the competition, Britain's Manliest Man is, is a bit of a joke but you know, I've met Spectrum. Where did that come from? Did it was, I, I, I was reading a magazine in Men's Health and I saw the advert and smirked, but then it was sponsored by Orchid, the, the charity that I now represent. And I saw, I read it a bit closer and it said, oh, we're looking for someone that epitomizes manliness. It doesn't have to be good looks. It can be a good job, charity work. And I'm like, oh, okay, I do quite a few of those. So I submitted my application um, thinking it'd be a great platform if Britain's Manliest Man could be a testicular cancer survivor to show that there's no stigma attached. And luckily they shortlisted me to the final 40, which then went to a public vote. Really lucky, because I've got friends, I was on BVMF, I've got friends in the Red Arrows, they've all got big social media platforms, yeah. um, and they all tweeted and retweeted, and at the same time I was lucky enough to appear on this morning, uh, and that got me some national exposure, and with, you know I managed to win with twice, twice the amount of votes as a second place prize. Much to the distaste of all my friends and my brother, who now are sick of the story, because I keep telling them that I'm Britain's manliest man. You carry uh, a magazine around. Yeah, carry a magazine around, tell people. Uh, so that's pretty funny. But I think the thing that summed up the RAF and the Americans for me, we were on Red Flag and we were planning, and this guy was calling me iPod because I was wearing an iPod name badge. And I wasn't really responding because my nickname's Peps. And eventually he said, hey, how did you get your nickname iPod? So I turned to my pilot, Chris, who'd, who'd done the name badge, said, why don't you tell him? He said, oh, he had cancer, he's, he's only got one testicle now. And this American was mortified. He, was like, he couldn't believe that we were making jokes out of a serious subject. And he turned around and said, what? You, you make jokes about this thing? At which, point, at which point my pilot just looked up from his plan and went, sorry, mate, didn't you hear me? He's only got one bollock. Brilliant. Yeah, so that was that. So, yeah, it's good. And generally, the Air Force have been really supportive. They let me go out and do school visits. Uh, when, when they can spare me at work but if we can arrange it they're, they're quite supportive of me doing awareness work and, and using the platform Do you think men are still have that stigma attached to checking or talking about it? Uh, I think it's getting better I mean I'd seen the Lance Armstrong story so I, yeah. I was aware of it um, unfortunately he's now not the great hero that everyone used to think he was but I'm torn on that one because to me he is because he probably saved my life so if you cheat in a bike race don't really care yeah. um, everyone else was cheating so I think they're getting better. I talk to all the cadets, so in the last week at the course, I, I give all my cadets a talk in the hope that they'll go out and, and talk to the people that they're going to be in charge of, and slowly but surely we'll, we'll reduce the stigma. And it's, a, it's 99, 98% curable. So if caught early, it, it's fine. It's not like the horrible cancers. Yeah. So could you tell us about some of the charities or projects you're involved with? Yeah, I, I, anything to do with awareness. I try to stay away from raising money because people are a bit charity strapped at the moment yeah. and everyone's after your money so I try to do awareness so Orchid are the male cancer charity that I worked with through the magazine I work with another great one uh, male cancer awareness charity so they have naked style cycling suits so I did the London 100 mile last year in a naked cycling suit uh, they've also got a giant hot air balloon in the shape of testicles I've seen that, yeah. so I mean if you want to interview with them guys I'm sure we can tee you up yeah. that'd be a great interview uh, but a great awareness tool just if, bring a bit of humour into it and and get guys talking any way they can. Uh, other, other charities I work with, I work with the John Eggin Trust, so the Red Arrows pilot that um, sadly died at the air show, his, uh, his widow Emma set up a brilliant charity in his name that helps young people and we do a lot of good work with them. Uh, we get them over to Cranwell on occasions and actually nationwide now. We started really smallly with a, a group of 12 kids and we did some low rope exercises at, at Cranwell and she's now grown into a massive charity that's, that's doing really good work. It's, it's amazing to be a part of.
And finally, we hear a personal side to Al. So, Al, do you have any hobbies? Uh, hobbies, time for hobbies. Uh, not really. I think my martial arts is, is the main one. I, I get to the gym most days, uh, try and keep fit. I'm desperately trying to learn Japanese. I had a go at trying to learn the piano, but there's never enough hours in the day to, to do the hours practice that you need to do on these things. Do you ever get to wear shorts? I don't really. I guess it's a bit busman holiday. Having done them for three years with BVMF, I've, I've seen a lot of the good displays and I quite like a Saturday off if I get a Saturday off these days. So um, I'll probably go back to them. It's something I'll probably revisit later on once I've left mm -hmm. and uh, go back and see what people are doing with the JSFs and the typhoons of this world. Yeah. Favourite tipple? Favourite to tipple. I like a glass of red wine uh, with food and probably an old-fashioned. Oh, me too. Yeah. Favourite aircraft? Favourite aircraft ever? Ever. Ooh. That's like trolley trying to say which is your favourite child for people with kids. <laughs> I mean, the Wessex is my first love because yeah. she was the first one I flew, but then the Tornado, I, I, I went and flew and, and did operations on and, and had an amazing time. And then there's only one Lancaster flying in this country, two worldwide. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, one, I, I, I can't pick. I can't pick uh, out of them. Favourite one I've never flown would probably be the Strike Eagle. I'd have, I'd have loved to have had a trip in the F-15. That was just the next question. So finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? No. Um, like most air crew, we, the two favourite subjects are ourselves and, <laughs> and, and jets uh, or aeroplanes. So I think we all get into it because we're enthusiasts. Yeah. And that's the great thing about the community, both uh, those that are lucky enough to fly them and those that are interested in them, that we just genuinely enjoy flying and, and our aircraft. So no, we, uh, most people get bored of the fact that that's the only thing that we talk about. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget you can watch and listen to all of our other interviews at aircrewinterview.tv. Also, please sign up to our newsletter for exclusive content, prizes, upcoming interviews and much more. And of course, go over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us grow and to become part of the team for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.